Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast for fans by a fan of the Houston Astros. Here is your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, thanks for joining me here today on Astros Baseball. I have a special guest lined up for you today, longtime broadcaster, 30 years with the Houston Astros, Bill Brown. Mr. Brown, thank you for joining me here on the episode today. My pleasure, Rob. Please uh, call me Bill Brownie, whatever strikes your fancy. Okay, Brownie. That's how I know you as, uh, you know, from mm-hmm. watching you on the broadcast all those years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first question I want to ask you, how did you get started in broadcasting? That's always a, a question that I have for everybody. For me, I, I would love to have been a player, but <laughs> my baseball playing days did not uh, feature any outstanding work whatsoever. <laughs> so I was fortunate to be uh, aware of the fact at age 14 that I was not going to be gifted enough to be a player. And therefore, I wanted to be as close to the game of baseball as I could be. And I decided that maybe, you know, listening to Jack Buck and Harry Carey doing the Cardinal games every night, maybe that would be a good way to go. Yeah, that's it's something I've always been interested in. I I mean, I wish I could have done that, but I never really had the opportunity or I guess I really never knew how to do it. So where did you uh, get your start? Did you have to go to college for this or how did all this begin? It's not necessary to do that, but I did, and um, I actually started in high school. We had a high school journalism class. I, I took that as a junior, and um, it was a small town in Missouri, and there were a couple of small radio stations. So on the one station that carried uh, my high school's games, uh, they had uh, a little five-minute slot. I think it was three days a week, different ones of us from journalism class were selected. It was uh, something that was determined by the teacher. And we, we probably submitted a voice tape or something like that. I don't remember. But we would come on and do five minutes of just news from that high school uh, that week. And um, I just pretty much turned it into a sportscast and interviewed my buddies on the football team and that kind of thing just to develop my own skills as far as sportscasting went. So it, was, it wasn't too much... Uh, who was doing well in uh, in math or anything like that. It was all sports for me. <laughs> so that's uh, kind of where you got the bug and decided that's what you wanted to do for a career? Right. And so then I went to the University of Missouri, which has a good journalism school, um, and then there got a chance to uh, really take some, some classes that were geared toward various phases of journalism, the writing phase, uh, and you know, preparation of a broadcast. And we had a television station there, KOMU in Columbia, Missouri. It was a, actually a commercial station, but it was owned by the university. And that's pretty rare. Some universities own uh, campus stations, educational type stations, but this was an actual commercial station. And so um, some of us uh, were 
you know, we got screened, um, and then we were selected to go on the air and do the, like the early morning five minute cut in in the Today Show on NBC, that kind of thing. Uh, just a local affiliate, of course. But um, in that in that kind of discipline, we were taught how to arrive early, how to go through all the various wire services and select stories, and then write those stories and monitor other radio newscasts in the area to pick up uh, different stories that they might have. So in, into the discipline of news reporting and things of that nature, and then actually going on the air on camera, delivering uh, the five-minute newscast. So that was um, that was a good educational part of it. And then on weekends, I was actually doing high school play-by-play. I had a job at a station 30 miles away from college, and I was doing high school football and basketball all winter long. Every weekend, there would be games that usually – at least one, but sometimes there would be a Friday night and a Saturday night game. And that would involve some travel by car hmm. to various cities in Missouri. So it was, you know, a pretty, pretty early start to broadcasting, actually. Uh, when you were learning how to be a broadcaster, um, does someone's voice have anything to do with it? Or there's some people that just don't have the voice for it? Or is that something that can be taught? I, I think, you know, <clears throat> it is a gift. It certainly is a gift. To have a voice that, that is not a certain type of voice, but just a pleasant enough voice. And, you know, it's a little different in baseball because baseball games usually are three-hour broadcasts or, or longer. Mm-hmm. And and not having a pleasant voice can be a, a, a real downfall. But I do believe that uh, people who are not necessarily born with, with great voices can improve, I think, taking speech classes, which I did, uh, doing debate or anything, using the voice and, and being in front of people or being on the air, anything like that can be very helpful. And I think that, that a voice can be improved through uh, the proper type of training. It can happen. Okay, so when did you get your start as a professional broadcaster? When I was uh, coming out of the University of Missouri, I was hired to go to San Antonio and work for WOAI TV and radio. And um, I had been an intern there the previous summer through uh, Missouri Journalism. uh, Different firms would come in and interview for internships. So I was fortunate enough to have been selected and had basically been trained at WOAI there in San Antonio in uh, shooting film at the time (laughs) before videotape. Hmm. editing film and, and, you know, of course the writing part of it had already been taught to us at Mizzou. But, um, at that point we had the draft, the military draft to worry about. And, uh, so I was drafted eight, as they say, uh, it, it appeared that I was going to be drafted and the station knew that, but they said, well, we, we've trained you already the previous summer. You're going to be up to speed the first day on the job. So we'll just take our chances with that. And after about 10 or 11 months, I was drafted and I did go into the army for a couple of years after that. Huh. Did you do any broadcasting while you were in the Army? Actually, I did. Um, I was stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma for, <laughs> oh, I don't know, probably eight or nine months. And um, I did a daily show. Uh, I would interview various people um, who would tell about their jobs on the post or if something, some big project was going on. I'd put together a little audio tape and do a voiceover kind of thing. And then those pieces were usually played on the, you know, something like a new newscast on, on the uh, Lawton, Oklahoma mm-hmm. station. 
there. And then when I went to Vietnam, I actually wound up doing uh, sportscasting in Saigon. And when I tell people this, they say, well, what, what kind of a play-by-play job was there there? Well, it wasn't play-by-play. It was reporting uh, the, the baseball and football and basketball scores from the U.S. leagues. And, um, you know, there'd be troops out in the field on the fire bases or wherever they were stationed who would have their transistor radios and they wanted to hear how their hometown team did. So that's what we did. We reported on uh, news from, you know, Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL, that sort of thing. That must have been a rewarding uh, part of the job there. Um, so- it really was. Yes, it, w- it was because you knew the troops were rapidly involved and some of them were, you know, betting on Alabama, Auburn, that kind of thing. But they were, yeah. and they, you know, they didn't have a whole lot to entertain them there. So that was pretty important at the time. So when you you had dreams of being a professional broadcaster uh, for sports, did you was baseball your first choice, or did it just happen to be baseball what it turned into? Baseball was my first choice, but I liked the other sports as well. And you know, it's it's very hard to to step right out of college into a baseball job. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think versatility is what I would preach to anybody who's interested in moving into sports casting and you know the more versatile a sportscaster is it just depends on the job opportunities that may crop up but if you happen to be good at baseball basketball football maybe even hockey it just gives you many more opportunities when the jobs do come along you can't always pick your sport and hold out for a job in your favorite sport it just doesn't work that way but it did happen to work eventually for me that way. So earlier in your career, um, I actually see that you uh, did some basketball. Yes. Yes. I did some basketball. I've done some tennis. I've actually done bowling. I've done football, college, and I did uh, some Cincinnati Bengals preseason. So I've done college and pro football. Um, And, and not, not extensive amounts of it, but, uh, you know, you just um, find yourself sometimes uh, having to be uh, assigned to something that you may not, in fact, be all that prepared to do. But you, you have a hard time in our business saying no, because every chance you get to be on the air, it's a chance to grow as a professional. Right. So your first uh, professional job was with Cincinnati Reds? Actually, it was. Um after uh, the Army, uh, we went to Cincinnati, got a job there, and I was hired to be a booth announcer, which is the most boring job at TV, uh, and do weekend sports. And so I was told, hey, um, you know, when you're in the booth, you could just put your announcements on tape because it's usually just station IDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, uh, you know, the network shows would be on for a three-hour period of time between the 6 o'clock news and the 11 o'clock news. And then it'd be some local shows too. And um, they just told me, well, go out to a Reds game or go to a Xavier basketball game or go to a Cincinnati Swords minor league hockey game and just make sure you're up on all the sports here in the city. Make sure you develop your contacts. And, and so I would do that. And while I was at a Reds game for three four innings between uh, sports casts, I would um, take my little uh, tape recorder with me and I'd sit down in, a, in an open booth that wasn't being used and uh, just try my hand at some play-by-play in baseball. And um, it was very humbling because it wasn't very good, but that's <laughs> the way to improve. That's the way to improve. Just keep trying, keep trying. And, and uh, then, you know, 
know, I, I tell kids who are, who are doing this, I say, well, sit down in front of the TV set, turn off the sound, and do your own play-by-play, and just keep doing that until you feel that you've uh, improved quite a bit. And at that point, get some critiques. You know, have somebody in the industry critique you or, or somebody your family knows who's in broadcasting or something of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's another way to improve at it. Okay, so when you started with the Reds in 76, how old were you? Well, let's see. I was born in 47, so, you know, I was, uh, I was getting up there almost 30 years old. Like, oh, oh so. you know, 29, 30, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, that's that's a good that's a good thing to know that, I mean, you were a successful sportscaster that had a long career and you really didn't get going professionally till you're almost 30. So, I mean, that's 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 a good part. Yeah, I think, um, you know, broadcasting is, is like a lot of other uh, industries uh, in needing to pay one's dues. And, right. Uh, so, you know, if you walk into a radio station and you've never worked in the industry before, I think uh, it would be a good idea to be completely open to anything that there happened to be available in that radio station, even if it's mopping the floors. Right. By, by, getting, by getting yourself in the building and sitting there and talking to the disc jockey or the newsman or whoever, it might get you something better. So being with the Cincinnati Reds from 76 to 82, I'm assuming at the, at the early part of your career, you're probably broadcasting the Big Red Machine? That's correct. Yeah. Um, you know, we moved there in 72, and I was doing weekend sports, and the Reds went to Game 7 of the World Series, lost that to Oakland. But it was a very exciting time. They went to the playoffs again in 73. They won the World Series in 75 and 76. So that was a very, very exciting time to be around uh, one of the best teams in baseball history. Yeah, when I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was born in 71, and I, re- I remember the Reds being the big red machine when I was a five- or six-year-old kid. And knowing who uh, Johnny Bench was and knowing who Pete Rose was, uh, that must have been an exciting time. So how did you get the job with Cincinnati Reds? <laughs> well, we, we had a situation back then of only having about 40 games on TV. And I know it's it's hard for people to relate to that right now. Yeah. But, but in those days, um, I think the owners of teams uh, didn't feel that putting a lot of games on television was good for their attendance. I think they really were emphasizing uh, people being at the ballpark more than they were, um, you know, and, and the big TV money wasn't being waved under their noses either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then gradually, you know, a team like the Reds became so popular, they kept filling the stadium, so it became natural to put more games on TV because people simply couldn't get tickets. Uh, but the but the Reds were kind of slow to come around to that. And um, they, so they were only doing maybe 40 games a year. And uh, they would hire, they hired uh, Charlie Jones, who was a, one of the famous broadcasters nationally, who was on NBC quite a bit. And he did uh, pro football and he did uh, Olympic sports. And he had a great voice. He was very well known. And they had hired him to freelance the Reds games, even though he lived in La Jolla, California. So um, people would maybe scratch their heads about that. Well, he didn't even live in Cincinnati. No, they didn't require that at that time because they actually wanted to restrict the home game telecast to three per year. Uh, Therefore, um, almost all their games were road games. So it was just as easy for him to fly from La Jolla to 
LA or La Jolla to, you know, wherever it might be. Pittsburgh is from Cincinnati to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And, and the games were not numerous enough to, re, you know, to require him to do, you know, he didn't ever do 10 games in 12 days or anything like that. That just wasn't the setup in Cincinnati. But then in, in September, he did uh, NFL football for NBC. So he would miss some September games. And that's where I got a chance to fill in on a few games and a chance to get my feet wet. uh, The guy who was doing color at that time was Woody Woodward, who later became the general manager of the Seattle Mariners. Woody had played shortstop for the Reds in his playing days. So I got a chance to work with Woody. You know, it's always a learning experience when you can sit there uh, beside a player who really knows the game well and has played the game well. It's an education to work with people like him, and that, that allows your career to grow. And uh, so I, I did a few games there and just kind of waited for the opportunity, which didn't really happen until 76. Huh. So you did a fill-in job. So did they start – when did they start televising more than 40 games a year? Well, it really wasn't um, until probably the 80s. Uh, it took a while. Uh, you know, the regional cable explosion – uh, home sports entertainment, um, various uh, local cables and regional cables like that came along yeah. uh, in the 80s. So it just it really had not exploded during the 70s at all. It was uh, there were teams like the Phillies who were doing a lot of games on TV, but um, it, it was more often than not a case of, of limited schedule on television back in the 70s. Yeah, I remember in the. Uh, in the 80s, when I was a young kid, that the Braves and the Cubs were on daily. And I just always assumed that baseball games were being broadcast every day forever. I didn't know that they were only shown 40 times a year. That's a pretty amazing story. Right. Yeah. And we'd, we'd all watch those guys, you know, when we weren't on and, and say, boy, that'd be a great job to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you were with Cincinnati six years. Why, why did you leave that job? I actually got fired. Um, we, uh, <laughs> we, had, we had the best record in baseball in 81, which was a strike year. And mm. um, even though we had the best record in baseball, we didn't make the playoffs because they divided the season into two parts. And we missed out. I think we, we were a half game out when the strike came. And then after we resumed play, we were maybe a game and a half out in the second half, something like that. So we just narrowly missed. And they put, put the winners of, of both halves in the playoffs uh, during that strike hmm. season. And we so we didn't go. So uh, we had the best record in baseball. And then in 82, we went from that in 81 to losing 101 games in 82. Um, it was a bad team. I was a bad broadcaster. I got fired. Wow. Uh, and yeah, so then I was kind of scrambling around and wound up. That was about the time these regional cables started. So there was one in Pittsburgh. HSE was just starting there and I got a job as their sports director and that went out of business after one year. And then I, <laughs> there was a sports time cable network, which was a regional cable in the Midwest that was based in Cincinnati. So I knew some of the people there and sure enough, I got a job there. More as a producer than on air and, and moved there for, uh, see, we were there for about a year and that went out of business. So then they assigned our contracts to uh, the Financial News Network in Santa Monica, California, which wanted to start a sports talk show on national cable at night. 
And I did that for uh, a couple of years and then got the Houston job. All right. So you end up going to Houston and staying there for 30 years. That must be crazy for the Reds to to see that, that they let you go thinking you're not good enough for them. And then you end up having a successful 30 year career somewhere else. Well, it worked out for both of us. Um, and I couldn't have told you, I know when I came to Houston, I was very scared of, of not <laughs> maintaining my job because Gene Elston had just been fired yeah. and he had been with the Astros since they were the Colt 45s, 1962. So he had a 25 year run. And, you know, he got the Ford Frick Award, and he has a plaque in the Hall of Fame right now. So so they had fired Gene, and I was a little worried <laughs> coming into that situation. And I never could have thought about being in that job for 30 years. I was just beyond any hope that I would have had at that point. Hmm. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about uh, your years in Houston. We'll be right back, folks. You're listening to Astros Baseball. Okay, and we are back. So, Brownie, I want to call you Mr. Brown so bad, but you told me to call you Brownie. That's right. Um, <laughs> 1987, you get hired by the Astros. We already started talking about it a little bit. But uh, how, how did you get that job coming from, where were you at, Cincinnati? Or you said you were... We were actually in Los Angeles. You were in Los Angeles with that cable network, right? Right. And uh, we were doing a nightly show on national cable, and we needed uh, to get guests in the studio for interviews. And we took calls. Uh, we had updates and things of that nature. Um, so part of my job, I was senior producer, was to uh, help with the guests. And um, the Astros were leading in the NL West, and they were coming to Los Angeles in September. And I knew Dick Wagner who was the general manager of the Astros because he had been the general manager of the Reds when I was there. Mm. In fact, I remember he sent me a note after I got fired by the TV station because I did not work for the Reds. Um, he sent me a very nice note about it. Hey, it wasn't our decision, but blah, blah, blah. Good luck to you. And um, we hadn't really stayed in touch, but, but I knew that, you know, if I called him, I, I could talk to him and I called him in Houston and said, uh, you know, I'd love to have you be a guest on our show here in L.A. if you're going to be traveling with the team when they come. And he said, yes, I am. I said, great. So we made arrangements. He came on the air. He and I did about uh, probably about an hour on the air, took calls. Uh, then we didn't have any budget for uh, transportation, so I gave a ride in my car back to downtown L.A. to the hotel. Hmm. And we were chatting along the way, and he said, uh, well, uh, he said, uh, are you trying to get back in baseball? And I said, no, not really. I said, you know, it's been five years now, and um, I've just bounced from one job to another, <laughs> and I'm just trying to keep my head above water, uh, you know, bring home a paycheck to keep the family going. And, and so, no, I, you know, with, with baseball jobs, there's a lot of rejection. Um, you know, it's typical uh, to never hear anything when you send in your resume and apply for a job because there are hundreds of applicants every time there's a baseball job open. Mm -hmm. So I had not really pursued anything after after the first year or so that I was out. Uh, I hadn't really pursued anything in baseball. And uh, so, you know, uh, I drop him off at the hotel and we both go our merry ways. And then in November, he gives me a call and said, hey, I remember the, the conversation we had 
about whether you would be interested in getting back into baseball. I just want to tell you, we have an opening now. If you're interested, send your resume and your tape to our director of broadcasting, Art Elliott, and good luck. And so I did, and they whittled it down to the final three and invited us to, to fly into Houston and be interviewed which three of us did, and of course I didn't know at the time who the other two were. I later found out, and I knew both of them. Hmm. But um, they wound up uh, surprising us with an audition. <laughs> wow. After we interviewed with them at the Dome, they took us over to HSE's studios, and we thought we were getting a tour, each one of us individually. came on different days. Right. And uh, then they said, well, okay, uh, we're, we're going to do an audition tape with you. And we have a tape of a game last year between uh, the, the Astros and the Dodgers. And we're going to roll that tape and we're going to put your voice on it. We're going to have some crowd noise there. We're going to give you a half an hour to prepare for this. We have the lineups filled out. Here's the lineup card and, and uh, score sheet. Here, here are the lineups that are filled out. Uh, but we'll give you the media guides of both teams so you can kind of look through here and make some notes. And then we're going to roll the tape in a half an hour. This, we're doing this to all of our finals. Okay, so of course I had no idea this was going to be happening. This was pretty rare in the business then, and I think it, I think it would be very rare now. Um, but uh, all of us did the three innings or so, and then they kind of compared our work side by side, and I wound up getting the job. So that chance meeting you had the when you interviewed <laughs> that guy that if you wouldn't have done that, no, I, you, you I, probably I wouldn't be would here have. today. That's exactly right. It's just pure happenstance. Uh, uh, being a believer, I think God had a hand in it. That's just the way I look at it. But um, otherwise, I was very concerned about the future of this operation in L.A. I, you know, having been with two companies that had failed financially, I saw this as number three. Wow. <laughs> and as it turned out, that did happen about a year after I left. So I, I actually had an interview with a company called Paychex, and I was going to get out of broadcasting completely wow. at that time. Uh, and that had been a few months before this whole development with Houston. So it just it just goes to show you how unpredictable life is and how unpredictable broadcasting is. Yeah, you just never know. I, I think that's no. an amazing story. So you started out with Houston in 87. So this interview was 86 or sometime a little bit before the season. Yeah, I wasn't actually hired till uh, February of 87. So I was kind of like Dusty Baker here in 2020. I did not have much time to prepare. So, so what were the Astro teams like in 87? And when you very first started, were they, were they a good team? They had some good players. Who, what do you remember about your first season? It was a very good team. Um, they, they had come within an eyelash of going to the World Series in 86. They had that great playoff series with the Mets, and they lost it in game six, a uh, 16-inning game. And they had almost everybody returned to the 87 team. So very much a veteran team. They had, you know, Mike Scott. Mm -hmm. Dave Smith was the closer. Jim Deshays was uh, in the rotation. Danny Darwin was in the bullpen. I had Jim Deshays, as I mentioned, and Mike Scott and uh, several other established starters. They had uh, Billy Doran at second base. Davis was at first. Craig Reynolds was at shortstop. Um, and they had, you know, Denny Walling and Phil Garner at third. They had uh, Jose Cruz 
and uh, Terry Poole and uh, Kevin Bass. They, they really had Alan Ashby, a very, very solid team. But they were just, you know, one year further down the line with these veterans being one year older. Yeah, Nolan Ryan was on the team, and they just didn't quite uh, perform as well in 87. So they did not go to the playoffs that year. And then they they tried to, to hang in there with Scott and, and the Shays and these guys for a few more years, but the team just kept getting older and older. And they didn't have the prospects coming up for the minor leagues, so they wound up rebuilding. In uh, 91, they had an all-young team with Art Howe managing and, mm. you know, lost to 90-some-odd games. And so it was, a, it was a rebuilding process we were into at that point. Then by the time you said 96, I think, was the first year you really started watching. Yeah, the, well, first, that, the first game I went to, Shane Reynolds pitched, and they played the okay. Cubs. Right. Uh, I just did a radio show with Shane, and he and I are going to do a, a radio game as partners here at the end of spring training. So he's, he's making the transition to broadcaster himself, ironically. But, um, no, by then the team was good again. It, you know, mid-'90s, 94 was a very good year. Terry Collins came in to manage, uh, 95, 96. And then in 97, they did make the playoffs. 98, they won 102 games which was one of the best teams I've been around. And then in 99, I, I remember that was a good year. They went to the playoffs that year. And uh, that was the year they closed the Astrodome. And one of my favorite memories was the last game in the Astrodome, last regular season game. They had a full house. Um, we didn't know if there were going to be any playoff games in the Dome or not because it went down to the final day. And they had to win, and they did. There was confetti coming down from the roof. Mm. Uh, all the, uh, the old-time Astros, uh, the prominent ones, had been invited back, and they were there. Willie Nelson was singing, turn out the lights, the party's over, on the field after the game. Guys were riding around. Biggio and Mike Hampton, you can look back at some of the photos, are riding their motorcycles on the field with the smoking cigars mm -hmm. with the uh, with the division-winning caps on, that kind of thing. Um, so it was, it was a fun time. It really was. Well, let me ask you about this. This is something that just came up while you're talking. Um, you're talking about the playoffs back in '87. Uh, did the local broadcasters get to do the playoff games, or was it because right now they don't get to do it? As soon as the season's over, your team makes the playoffs. Y'all are done. Did y'all get to cover right, the playoffs I, back then? Uh, not really. We um, when I was in Cincinnati. We were allowed to televise, I think it was the division series, but by the time the league championship series rolled around, there was no local TV. Um, that, but that was back in the 70s. So we get to Houston, in the, and really, see, we didn't make the playoffs. Once I arrived in 87, we didn't make the playoffs until 97. Yeah. Um, so by then, uh, we were not allowed to do the games on TV in the playoffs, but I did do a few innings on radio because they wanted uh, the TV announcers to, to fill in a little bit. You know, Milo Hamilton uh, mm -hmm. was on radio, Larry Durger, and so uh, we would um, we'd fill in like do three innings on radio on the playoffs. But at, at least it was something. But um, it's been a long time, you know, since I've done a playoff game, and that's. Probably one of those things, if you ask, you know, Todd Callis, Jeff Blum, anybody who's done TV and, and is with a great team, really, really uncomfortable to be in the playoffs and not be working. 
Yeah. So you, you talked about the team moving from the Astrodome to, I guess it was called Enron Field the first year. Uh, how was that for you as a broadcaster? Did you enjoy the move? Did you like the new atmosphere? I'm pretty sure you got your uh, your booth was a lot nicer. How was that for you moving to the new stadium? Well, we were all very excited because um, the dome, I thought, was terrific, but um, it was aging. And, and this ballpark was so vibrant. Uh, I love what they did with placing it downtown, and now all the development has sprung up around it. So it's really revitalized downtown Houston. We thought it would happen a lot sooner than it did, but nonetheless, it happened. And and that first year it hadn't happened, but but yeah, the booth was perfect. The, you know, we we were a little bit lower, closer to the field than we had been in the dome. Uh, the sight lines were tremendous. Um, just just everything was state of the art. So, and then just the vibrancy of the crowd would provide a lift every single night. You know, the, the place was sold out. So it was a tremendous way to make that transition. I think we all loved it. So, uh, being the play-by-play uh, -play guy, who was your uh, some of your favorite uh, color commentators to work with? Well, of course, I love working with Larry Durker, and uh, he was here when I got to Houston in 87, so he and I worked together for 10 years, and, and Bill Worrell was here too, and Bill was the staple at HSE. He's been, he's been around Houston forever as a broadcaster, uh, but Bill did home games only, and then uh, when Larry was called out of the booth, manage, starting in uh, 97, uh, Jim Deshaies moved into the booth and he and I worked together for 16 years. So that's the longest I've ever worked with any partner. And I just, I've heard so many compliments about Jim Deshaies down through the years. They, they, people here or wherever they were watching Astros baseball just thought he was one of the best. And I have to agree with him. You know, he was funny and he had that, that sense of entertaining people. Uh, you know, when it right. was a 10 to one ball game and it was a pretty boring game, he would, make Seinfeld references and he, he get people laughing and he just, <laughs> he just had a way of turning the switch and, and throwing it into entertainment mode. And, and he, you know, that's not really my personality. So he was great. I, I he kind of, he, he really kind of pulled me out of being so serious. I thought, and, and we had a, a lot better time as every year went along. And before you knew it, we were joking around all the time. And I think people really preferred that. Yeah, what I had read earlier is uh, when you were partners with him, it said the way it described it, it said you kind of played the straight guy to his right. to his comedy. I would agree with that. Yeah, he, he just had the gift, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you decided to retire in 2016. I kind of noticed. I think it was that last season you really didn't do all of the games. Is that when you decided that it was just too – was it too much for you to do all the traveling? Or, I mean, why did you decide to retire? Yeah, I hit a wall with all the travel. It just it was exhausting, and I just felt that I, my work was slipping a little bit. I, I didn't think I was as sharp. Um, I thought I, I labored a little bit. You know, and you notice things as you get a little bit older, or well, day games after a night game, you're, you know, you get to August, you're pretty worn down. You're just not as mentally sharp as you'd like to be. Uh, you may not, uh, you know, notice everything you should be noticing about the game you're doing. 
Yeah. Uh, and so I just felt like, well, instead of just hanging on and, and getting, getting, you know, slower and slower and your eyesight starts to say a little bit, you know, there, there are a lot of negatives associated with aging when you're doing play by play. Um, and I just, I just wasn't willing to risk looking bad. So <laughs> I just decided that was a good time to step away. Okay. So, uh, what are you busy keeping yourself doing? Uh, what are you doing? Keeping yourself busy now. There you go. Still working uh, part-time for the Astros. Um, so this winter, I've done some Astroline radio shows, which we do in the off-season. Just did one the other night. And um, I'll go out and speak in the community, speak at luncheons or dinners or MC things. Uh, we have the Shriners uh, College Classic coming up uh, next week. Mm-hmm. And I'm MCing a luncheon for that. Um, I'll do maybe seven games on radio, uh, filling in for Steve Sparks this year. He has some vacation time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll, I'll make appearances with players. We have an Adopt-A-Fire Station program, so every month we take a player to a fire station, and Jose Altuve signs his number 27 uniform. They frame it. We take it to Fire Station 27. He does a tour, signs autographs, things of that nature. So that's been going on. I think this will be the third year we've had that program. Uh, various things like that, just, you know, appearances out in the community. And then, you know, my wife and I have our own things that we get involved with for charity and things of that nature. So right. it's um, it's actually pretty busy. So earlier you were speaking about something you have, you're going to start doing with Shane Reynolds? Yeah, Shane is um, going to do color on a game with me uh, March 24th. When the Indians come to Minute Maid Park to play the Astros, I think that's the final spring training game. Uh-huh. And then they have a day off, and then they open the season here. Uh, but Shane, I think, may do some games after that with, you know, maybe Robert Ford or whatever the selection process is. I'm not sure, but that's a possibility. that it, Because um, Sparky, you know, Sparky had some heart issues last year. Right. And, um, and it wasn't really because of that, but he had it in his contract that he wanted – I think he has 15 games off per year or something like that. A little vacation time. So different people will fill in here and there. Uh, it's nice to have different choices. Uh, they have uh, people like Mike Stanton, Brian Bogusevic, former players who are in this area doing pre- and post-game work on radio and TV. So there, there are other choices too. But I think the more choices the ball club has, the better it feels about the situation. All right. So finally, what are your uh, what's your outlook for the Astros this year? Well, you know, it's so so much of an unusual offseason, of course, one like we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, you know, of course, all the speculation is, well, they're going to have problems on the road because of the fans, this and that and the other thing. And I, I would expect that they're just going to have to really rally around each other, um, close the ranks. Um, on the road, I don't think they're going to be very venturesome outside of the team hotel. I wouldn't think so. Right. Um, it's going to be difficult. But putting all that aside, I think Dusty Baker is the perfect manager to deal with this situation uh, because he's been through things like this before. And uh, he's very good with the media. I think he will uh, uh, really convince the media that we, we just need to move on from all this questioning about the past. You know, We just really need to talk about things that are happening now with this team. And I think it's a very good team. I, I think this team will score runs. Uh, of course, uh, Robinson Chirinos has moved on. Martin Maldonado will be the main catcher. So typically, you'd expect a little bit of uh, offensive drop-off there in the catching. 
but but every other position in the lineup is solid. Yeah. And the pitching staff, of course, without Garrett Cole, that's going to be an adjustment now. I think the real challenge will be the innings load. You know, how many innings can Lance McCullers pitch? And it's been stated by Jeff Luno that he wouldn't have expected him to pitch more than about 120 because right. he missed all of last year. Same thing with Jose Urquidy. He pitched 154 last year after after missing through Tommy John surgery a couple years before and then not pitching very many innings in 18. So I don't know that he would pitch uh, much more than about 140 or so. And so some other guys are going to have to step up. Maybe Josh James. Um, you know, there are going to have to be people who are with the club right now. I don't think, you know, making a trade in July – for a Justin Verlander is uh, is probably in the sights this year, but we'll see. I, I I think this team will be very good this year, unless you know something unforeseen happens. I agree with you, sir. I think they're going to be very good. I I don't think they'll have any problems winning the West. They should be in the ALCS again, probably against the Yankees, and I look forward to the season. Sounds good, Rob. I enjoyed the conversation. All right, I do appreciate you doing this, sir. It was my pleasure having you. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, and enjoy 2020. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Be sure to subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Remember to give the five-star review to get your free sticker. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.